Welcome to the third episode of the Science of Feeding the World podcast. Welcome back. If you've listened to the first two, that's awesome. Thank you for joining us again. In today's episode, we speak with Professor John West about all of the gross stuff that's in the air. Also how that impacts on the food that we eat, because these fungal spores are really important for spreading disease. No one wants to eat diseased food, Hannah. I know I don't. Wow, Alex, I'm so glad you shared that opinion with us. Welcome to the Science of Feeding the World with me, Alex Dye. I'm Gary Fruin. I'm Hannah McGrath. And today we are joined by John West. Dr. John West. Professor. Professor John. Professor John West. Oh, this is getting better by the <laughs> So, what do you describe yourself as? Uh, I am primarily a plant pathologist. And, but I say, and aerobiologist as well. So I'm, I'm a biologist, but I've specialised in plant pathology and aerobiology. So those two overlap very greatly in the, in what I, I do. So, John, what's in the air? What's in the air? I think um, that's something that can be quite scary to some people. They'd rather not know what's in the air that they're breathing in. Should I um, be concerned? Well, there's all sorts of natural stuff in the air. Does that and, mean it's safe? Uh, but no, it's not necessarily <laughs> safe. Uh, anyone... in, in Gary's notes, I noticed he put, um, John will list all the awesome, gross and weird shit we're breathing in. <laughs> yeah, so we'll let something be bleeped out. Or, uh, anyway, we'll... Yeah, there's um, a whole load of different things in the air. Um, anyone who suffers from hay fever or um, allergies will probably be aware there are certain things that set them off um, and uh, those are the kinds of things like pollen, fungal spores, um, there's also, especially if you're indoors in a, a room like we're in now, potentially there's things like fecal pellets of tiny mites that can get wafted <laughs> up into the air. Yeah, everyone's covering their faces now and to breathe through. What? There. Fecal pellets? Yeah, yeah, we are literally breathing in pieces. Right. Okay, right. And, um, and there's all sorts of debris, dust, you know, ro- there's bits of rock dust and sort of all, all sorts of debris. There's also plant debris, bits of hyphal fragments of fungi. So a fungus, when I think of a fungus, I think of a mushroom. Yes. That's one type of fungus, but Correct. not the... So the mushrooms no, we see are the, the fruiting structures okay. that, are, that grow up to release spores. But in the case of the mushroom, there'll be a whole load of invisible threads called hyphae Mm -hmm. in the substrate that it's growing on. It might be soil or compost or something like that. And so those form a network that can go out for, for, you know, metres, even, even, you know, tens of metres. If you see things like fairy rings on a, a sports pitch or, you know, lawn, you're seeing actually where a colony of a fungus has grown out uh, from a, an original starting point. So those kinds of networks can spread. In some forests, they can spread for, you know, miles. Yeah. Yeah, they are connected, and what we see is just the mushrooms that come up. But that's just one type of fungus mm-hmm. called Basidiomycetes. They form mushrooms and toadstools and bracket fungi on trees. 
you've also got a whole load of other types of fungi. One important group is called ascomycetes, and they produce tiny little fruiting bodies that are only sort of microscopic, like microscopic puffballs that have bags of spores inside them that get shot out into the air when they get wet, typically. They've got different locations where they live, different ways of releasing their spores, some actively, some passively. Um, So those spores then are really important in their life cycle? Yes, yeah, it gets them to a new location. So in plants where they have pollen they release into the air, that's the pollen that's trying to find another plant to then complete the reproductive cycle. You need the two parts yeah. Is fungi with spores very much the same thing, or is that spore finished package just waiting for something? Yeah, to go? so we're going to end up getting quite complicated. But yeah. Let's just say some of them are able to just grow from a single spore and are kind of self fertile and can, can reproduce and produce more spores from that. Whereas others will need to land on, say, a suitable substrate. It might be a freshly cut tree stump or a nice piece of soil or something and it needs another spore of the same species to land nearby and then they grow together before they then can produce new spores so so there are different types yeah so all fungi produce so uh, question number one fungi fungus fungi this is depends where you're from really well it's it's if it's if it's the plural is fungus Uh but the singular can be Fungi, fungi, or fungi. So I'm not quite sure what the uh, the correct term is. <laughs> when um, you go to conferences, are there kind of battles over what well, words the, you should use? The Latin speakers would say fungi, and then and then British and Americans might tend to say fungi or fungi. So okay. it depends. Yeah. These are the big, big, the big, big questions. questions besides. So that's probably going to probably get more comments on that. Than, uh, <laughs> the controversial. That brings us to the question then, which is why? Yeah. Why do we study any of this? There's lots of <clears> gross <throat> and interesting things in here, but well, how does it relate to feeding the world? The topic of aerobiology is an interesting one to do with you know what biological particles are in the air. And my, my sort of area of science overlaps between that aerobiology and plant pathology because a lot of the important diseases of our crops are spread, as I said, by airborne spores. And so to understand the timing of disease epidemics, where the sources of the spores are that are, that are kick-starting the disease epidemics and finding out ways to forecast them or to monitor changes in the in the pathogen population we use a whole load of air sampling methods to study yeah their numbers in the air when and where they're coming from where does a lot of that because some spores i imagine can travel very far they get really high up into the air some are a few meters and things like that what are the differences that yeah well the most of the particles that are relatively small if you put them in a chamber of completely still air, they would fall at slightly different speeds. But in reality, in a, a normal sort of breezy day, those small differences are completely negligible compared to the turbulence of the wind and how it's all swirling about. And so pretty much everything that's smaller than, say, 30 microns aerodynamic diameter 
will blow for, or is able to blow for, you know, miles. Although some of them blow for miles, most of them would actually get deposited quite close to where they originated from. Mm. And so you've got this, typically it's a, called a negative exponential. The numbers decline more and more as you go further away mm. from the source, but some of them are going much further away. Although some of them are going a long way, the problem is on top of that decline in the actual numbers reaching a long way away, they're also starting to die from drying out or getting UV light on them or being frozen or being too warm. So so you've got this mortality decline during the flight time as well as just the decline in the numbers actually making it. So some fungi, like typically the rusts, are very, very well adapted to go really long distances. They can cross oceans from, say, Africa to Australia or from the UK to Denmark, you know, quite easily. They can cross um, seas and oceans or cross whole continents uh, because they've got pigmentation or tough cell walls and things that will protect them during that journey. Whereas some other herb spores are really sensitive to, say, strong UV light, and they wouldn't make it more than, say, the next field, and even then only on an overcast day. You know, so so you've got quite a big difference. And in a way, it's quite good for us, because otherwise we'd, we'd probably be catching a lot more you know, diseases and coughs and colds and things. A lot of the bacteria that go into the air are killed by ozone that's naturally in the air. And so after a certain time in the air, they're no longer viable. And that actually yeah. saves us from catching all these nasty things. Ozone is a pretty good pesticide way to raise start marketing it. <laughs> We'll be editing that out. So I just want to recap because I think we've been talking for not that long and we've covered a huge amount. We've covered all the ground from Africa to Australia, I think, so far. (laughs) So we talked about kind of just generally that there's lots of stuff in the air and that a lot of it is quite small and tiny and we can't really see it. But in the kind of things floating around, there's a lot of fungal spores fungus spores yeah and then those spores are really important for spreading the fungus around part of its kind of life cycle and then we've been talking about them in the air which i'm yes. I'm, I'm literally blown away do you like that pun do you see what i did there i haven't got on to talking about little dried up nematodes or their eggs or tiny other little creatures that were, yeah yeah there are yeah. nematodes in the air yeah I work with carrot growers and nematodes are a big problem for carrot growers. I'm not going to tell them that there are nematodes, little worms flying around. Jerry says this. Harry says that. What does that make say? I've really been enjoying this chat, but I think we should move on to the next session now. Thanks. We talked about all of the things that are in the air and you've mentioned kind of nematodes and fungal spores and all these things. But in terms of their actual impact on crops, what's, what's the risk there? How much damage do they do yeah so typically all sort of fungal diseases uh, and this includes some that are soil borne or vectored by insects most are actually are um, spread in the air they typically cause something like 15 percent yield loss globally on you yeah. know a wide range of different crops 
But some of them, especially rusts, for example, or potato blight is another good example, can almost completely wipe out an individual field if the conditions are right. But of course, nowadays, what I was going to come on to, and I'm sure you were going to ask me this, but we, we don't routinely now look look at identifying spores under a microscope because nowadays we've got a whole load of technologies to analyse the DNA of mm. the organism itself. So it gives us a better way of quantifying what's in the air and actually more accuracy on identifying what's there. And so we, we nowadays, instead of looking at what we've captured under a microscope, we extract the DNA out of the spores by breaking them open and purifying the DNA. And then we can do all sorts of diagnostic tests, either to look for an individual species that we're interested in, or we can sequence everything that's there to get information on the relative abundance of the hundreds of different things that are typically in the air. So you collect a sample of air through a kind of, I know you don't think of it as a vacuum, but I kind of think of it as a... A suction cleaner. (laughs) Yes. And then with those, you you extract the spores. But how do you get spores out of the air? Yeah, so there are different devices. So some of them will draw air in through a tiny air intake, like a narrow slit, and it will blast immediately against a sticky surface, like a, a piece of plastic tape. The spores stick to that. And the typical device we use, which is called the Burkhard spore trap, that sticky surface is actually on a clockwork mechanism that's slowly rotating past the air intake. So during the day, you've got different bands of what spores were in the air at different times of the day. So you can take that piece of tape off, look at it under a microscope, and you'll see there's sort of lots of a particular thing at one time of the day, and then it there might be less of that and more of something else. And that's all triggered by different weather events or it could be triggered by things like a, a farmer driving a tractor through the crop or, or something like that. Yeah. And so then once we've got the spores, you, I assume, take them back to a lab to extract the DNA or...? Well, for a long time, that's exactly what we've done. The sample is collected and then we have to rely on that being taken to a lab And that unfortunately causes a delay. Often it's been sent in the post and uh, or we might even collect a whole week's worth of samples and then send that in the post. So when we analyse it in the lab, the information is already a day or two or two even over a week old. So if we give out information to farmers to say, actually, we're starting to get some spores that could infect your crop, that is already old information, potentially. And for some things, that still is in time for the farmer to do something. For some other fast-moving diseases, that would be too late. And so we've actually been working on ways to do a more real-time detection. The the method we've been looking at is to do a a type of DNA-based diagnostic called a lamp assay. The thing with a lamp assay is you have... Small sections of nucleotides called primers, which will bind to single-stranded Do you want to flag up DNA. Nucleotides? Just... Ah, yeah. Mm. All right. Okay. So but some um, bits molecular of DNA... diagnostics work in the same way, say pregnancy tests and things, don't they? Do they? Is there a similarity for the lamp assays? Well, so in the case of a pregnancy test, you get two blue lines. 
one blue line is a sort of control to show that it's working and the other blue line shows it was a positive mm -hmm. test. We do also use, we're working with some collaborators that are using very similar devices also to detect proteins uh, or DNA of um, pathogens. So yes, that, that can be used. The lab-based DNA methods we use, one is called PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction. And in that, we design some little pieces of kind of, you could think of it as single-stranded DNA that will bind, it will start to bind to the DNA of the target organism that we've designed the primer to and carry on making a product that goes through lots of cycles and you end up with a, a product that you can detect. So you might have your spore or you know series of spores off of your strip, your sticky strip, mm -hmm. and then you use processes because obviously one spore is going to have a very small amount of DNA in it and it might be quite hard to detect. So you're then using this PCR chain reaction to build up the levels of that spore's DNA so we've got enough to, to find. Yes, you're exactly right there. The lamp assay is slightly different. It uses two or three pairs of primers to make a faster amplification and it's all done at the same temperature. So it needs less sophisticated equipment to do that because you, you do it all at the same temperature whereas the PCR method I just explained actually needs a, a more expensive device that's varying the temperature down to, say, 60 degrees and up to 90 degrees, sort of just for 30 seconds at a time. So that's quite quite a sophisticated piece of equipment. But, but the lamp assay just needs to be set at a single temperature, say 65 degrees. And there are other isothermal methods that will work at 37 degrees, for example. So they're easier to use with simple portable equipment that could be used in the back of a car or, in our case, in a, um, a box that can stand out in the field with the air sampler attached to it. And we then move the sample to where the test is finally done. And the nice thing is then we can text the results out to a, a server. Would you be looking at reducing that week-long time down to... Days, hours? Well, what we typically would do is still sample the air during the, the day, and then at some point in the night, we stop the sampling and do the test, which takes, say, an hour to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the results are then ready for the farmer to see the next morning. So wow. the farmer can then decide whether to spray a crop protection product or, or not. So it means that they would only spray actually when it's needed and not, not necessarily. Yeah. yeah. So, so they could reduce pesticide sprays yes. over the yeah. course of a year. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are you only looking for one or two or can you kind of look for mm. lots? Because I'm imagining yeah. that there are kind of like new diseases or kind of diseases that are maybe more common or more rare. Are you just looking for the big ones? Or do you also, look? Yeah, I guess the machine isn't doing kind of whole genome sequencing of just everything. You're looking for specific... You've created primers, so they're looking for yeah, particular bits so, of DNA. We're, we're almost going full circle now because, say, 20 years ago when most of our work was looking under a microscope, we might be looking for just a single particular species, but we might notice suddenly lots of another thing. And so out of curiosity, you try and work out what that is and identify it, and that might be useful information that there's a new pathogen arriving. <laughs> when we switch to just doing a single test for a known target organism, 
it means you've missed all the other information on what was there. And what's now starting to happen is that we are getting cheaper and cheaper ways of doing DNA sequencing to analyse the whole spectrum of what's in the air, rather than just look for one or two individual target species. Another method that's coming through is to go back actually almost to, to microscopy, but it's using either machine vision and image analysis to identify particles. And that can either be on a a trapped sample, a bit like a microscope slide, or it can be a slightly different approach is as air is drawn in through a narrow tube that can be scanned with lasers. And the particles going through those laser beams will reflect light of different wavelengths according to their pigments. It might absorb certain things. It might scatter the light depending on whether it's got a rough or a smooth surface. And it will be different sizes to the the spores. And so all of those features put together can give you a a diagnostic um, capability to at least identify what types of things are in the air. Now, as I said, there are thousands of different species or hundreds of thousands of different species of, say, fungi in the air. So identifying all of them just using some fairly crude optical features is not likely to be possible. But if you had your device in a wheat field, for example, and you suddenly started detecting lots of, you know, a certain particle, you could probably deduce that that particle is something that's coming off the wheat plants and therefore you would narrow down very quickly that it must be that particular thing that you you suspect. So if you have a spore, does that mean that you will get a disease on the plant? Or is it, so I know with something like the common cold, you might need something like 10,000 virus particles to get ill, but with norovirus, you might only need a couple of viruses. Do you, is is it similar with fungal? So you do have different infectivities of spores of different species and also I mentioned before some of the spores might have become inviable or basically died during the um, transportation process so you've got a combination of, of factors so I mean typically what we're sampling with our spore traps is only a tiny amount of what's what's around and so if we are detecting something in our spore trap there's probably plenty of the same thing landing on our crops in a nearby field, for example. You mentioned earlier putting the spore detector on a car. Is this a thing? Yes. Um, (laughs) I'm just picturing this. So I often get asked how big an area does a, a spore trap represent? So if we have a network of static devices just sampling the air, you know, several locations across the whole of the UK, for example, it can give us an idea that there's something happening earlier in, say, the southwest than the northeast of the country. And so we can we can alert farmers in different parts of the country. But you often don't know what's going on in between those static locations. And for some pathogens, the release of spores from different sources is, is very, very variable. So we have uh, also looked into having mobile spore traps that can be on the roof of a car and, in fact, also on drones as well flying around. So the car-mounted spore trap, we can drive around a particular area and actually some collaborators in Adelaide in South Australia have developed a really nice system where 
they can sample the air on a device on the roof of a car. And as they go into a, a different sort of zone of a map that they've loaded coordinates mm. into, the collection device will switch to collect into a new tube. So oh. you can have the collection as you drive along a journey mm. and come back again. It will switch back into the same tube as you go back into the same area. And then you can analyse those tubes separately. And it means that you can get an idea on the spatial variability of the different things you're looking for. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. So I'd like to know, because I think I've seen a car that you've taken to cereals, which is the big sort of farming event. Yes. And you've put the spore trap on top of it. And to me, it looks like the, you know, the Google map. Do, do you get people waving? Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks like you're kind of like the car with the big, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know how to describe it, like a unicorn car or something. I do get some strange looks from other drivers and pedestrians. It, it looks like a, a very large jam jar strapped to a roof rack on the car with a little kind of jet engine next to it. <laughs> um, it's not actually a jet engine, it's um, a Venturi device so that as it has no moving parts, as the car is driving along, just the air flowing yeah. through it sucks more air through the rest of the device and it kind of rams air into it and that goes through a tiny jet orifice that forces the air into a, uh, a chamber where it kind of turns back on itself. And that changing direction means that some of the particles separate and then just fall down into the base of the device where we collect the spores. So it's a really nice device because there's no moving parts and we can collect really high volumes of air, you know, something like 600 litres of air per minute if you're driving at 30 miles an hour. We can get those spores to, to drop down onto things like leaf sections of wheat plants that we can then incubate to see if we get disease on them. Or we can collect the spores in a Petri dish and just make a suspension in liquid and, and do a DNA extraction. So there's lots of different things we can do to analyse what, what spores were in the air. There's lots of different fields then that must have to come together. You've got a sport that's kind of engineering, you've got microbiology, yeah. you've got aerobiology. I've worked with physicists modelling the dispersion of, of spores into the atmosphere, weather experts, engineers, plant and animal pathologists, mm. microscopists. You know, it's a really broad subject area and absolutely fascinating. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You said earlier that you kind of took, started to study this because you didn't want to study things that you could catch. <laughs> but there must be there must be overlap, right, between yeah, the two fields. Oh, Do the two absolutely. fields, like medical field and this kind of converse about... Well, yeah, so the, the only difference is a lot of animal or, you know, human medical clinical diseases tend to be spread by much smaller particles like bacteria or viruses. The sampling equipment we would need to sample those things are, um, are a bit different. Mm. Uh, so to, to sample individual bacteria and certainly viruses, you have to actually bubble the air through a liquid or blast it onto the walls of a chamber that's got liquid swirling around so that basically the virus or bacteria ends up suspended in the liquid 
And those kinds of devices usually can only be operated for a short period of time, like 20 minutes or so, maybe an hour, uh, unless they're being topped up, which some devices do. And that's because otherwise the liquid evaporates and is lost. And so we tend not to do that for the plant diseases. So you can apply some of the same diagnostic tests and the same principles for understanding the dispersal and things like that. But some of the sampling equipment is a little bit different. Have you, have you ever heard of the cordyceps uh, fungus? Yes, yeah. So cordyceps purpurea causes ergot. Mm. And um, Should I know any of these things? Well, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you about it because um, so ergot is a, um, a structure that looks a bit like a, a dark purpley browny black seed-like structure <laughs> that grows grows instead of a seed on a on a cereal in a, in a cereal ear. Years ago, these they weren't noticed would end up getting ground up into the flour, and then people consuming that. Yeah, products made from that, like bread, got all sorts of terrible illnesses and hallucination. Oh, that's why you're interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a really massive outbreak of all these um, hallucinations and things like myths of, of werewolves and witches and so on. It's thought to partly come from that because everyone was, was hallucinating having yeah. eaten all this wow. herbity bread. Is this what Carrie Mullis had eaten when he invented the PCR reaction? <laughs> I don't know. I, I do not know. <laughs> he claims um, to have taken that. But the, the the spores from that are, are really uh, quite strange because they're really long, thin, sticky spores that that will blow in the wind and stick onto the uh, the florets of nearby cereal plants, and that's how they infect. See, I, I got a lot more than I bargained for with that question. Yes. So what I was specifically thinking of was the um, the, the, the fungus that is it, it, it attaches ah. to ants and sort of turn, very sci-fi fungus attaches yeah, to ants. Yeah, hold on. I've, yeah, so I've made a mistake there. I was talking about claviceps. Oh, okay. Yeah, so cordyceps, you're right. That is one that infects the, the uh, larvae of insects. Mm. Typically moths and butterflies, and instead of a butterfly hatching out of a chrysalis and flying away, nice beautiful butterfly, you get instead this club-shaped fruiting body of the fungus. Mm. Yes, uh, so that's cordyceps as yeah. opposed to claviceps. Yeah. Oh, this is the problem with some Latin names, especially uh, you know when I, I um, didn't bother to listen to the question properly. <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing is, um, in parts of the Himalaya, they go out actually looking for these little club-shaped fruiting bodies and harvest them and can dry them. They're sort of worth more than their weight in gold, you know, as a sort of herbal medicine. Mm. And um, reportedly, there is some science to it. You know, there are some really nice, useful chemicals in them. Wow. I just thought, I just got a bit scared when you were talking about it, because I think possibly the most famous example of cordyceps fungus is the one that turns ants into sort of zombies. So they sort of get infected, climb up to a high vantage point, and then burst out with all these spores, which then... It's a sort of Ebola fungus. That kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. What? (laughs) You were talking about these things that were... these. This spore that effects having on humans. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a crossover up. point to humans. That's <laughs> no, a zombie film right there. there. Are, uh, yeah, there are um, fungi that infect insects. Um, Metaresium is one, one of the genuses. Uh, there's a, yeah. the, the cordyceps you mentioned. 
So on the names of common fungal pathogens, what I realised is we were very good at not using jargon, but it did mean that I don't think we really spoke about any of the ones that farmers in the UK face or any of the ones that you work with. So what's like your top three or top five you want me to of the deadliest fungal pathogens? Well, most people will know, although it's not a fungus, it's an MIC the potato blight pathogen, mm-hmm. which is Phytophthora infestans. Mm-hmm. Another really common one on all sorts of plants, especially fruit. If you buy a punnet of strawberries and you leave it a couple of days past its use-by date, it might get a sort of greyish fuzz on it, and that's usually Botrytis cinerea. And Botrytis infects all sorts of fruits and, and vegetables. I mentioned earlier the some of the rust fungi. So on wheat, yellow rust, that's called uh, Puccinia or Puccinia striiformis. This is another mm-hmm. one that you know, Latin speakers would pronounce completely differently to sort of English or American speakers. And uh, when you call them rusts, why do you call them Yeah, rusts? because superficially it looks like the leaf has gone rusty because it's covered with a brownish or yellow powder that looks like piece of rusty iron i like it sometimes in the summer when i'm doing field work in cereal fields and you walk through and it's got a lot of kind of rust and you come out and your shoes are covered in it yes <laughs> yeah, yeah like and it is odd it, it yeah it's hard that, to explain it's important as well because although i've mentioned dispersal in the air there have definitely been cases where new diseases have been transported to uh, other continents on people's clothing and shoes and so part of sort of biosecurity now is that if you arrive at an airport they often have a line for people arriving that have worked on a farm or you know been on a farm in the last few days Mm. and they will quiz you much more and check that you're not still wearing the same dusty boots and might even make you walk through a trough of disinfectant or something like that so it's taken quite seriously now Mm, it should be yeah yeah I guess it could be really serious then if a virus crosses onto a new continent, say. Is it the, the banana virus? Which viruses are this really dangerous to bananas that they are? Well, there's, there's a fungus affecting bananas at the moment called Fusarium oxysporum, and that is wiping out a variety called Cavendish, which mm. is very widely grown. Yeah, yeah. But there are other varieties that are resistant. It's just that it, it takes a long time for farmers to replace the varieties they're growing with uh, the resistant ones. But I'm, I'm sure there are lots of virus diseases of bananas as well. Actually, a lot of virus and some bacterial diseases are tipped to become more important because of climate change. Oh, I've written that down. Tell us more. Yeah. Well, basically, as it gets warmer, we'll get more insect pests and they'll also be moving around more because it'll be warmer because of that they will be more potential for them to spread you know many of the virus and bacterial diseases that that they vector well also about the fungal pathogens as well because you kind of were saying that those wet Mm. warm moist conditions generally speaking the fungal pathogens like that will that be a concern from a climate change perspective we have looked into trying to sort of do a long-range forecast of what diseases will become more important and what what ones will become less important it's quite a tricky thing to do without doing the full life cycle analysis and modeling all of the interactions and there are often trade-offs because you might have a situation where 
you know, we're tipped in the UK to have wetter winters, for example. So that might build up more of a particular stage of a, of a fungus because there's more rain splashing the spores about and more wetness conditions for the fungus to infect. But then if it's drier in the summer, there might be less favourable conditions for the fungus towards the final stages of the crop's maturation. And so you've got to try and analyse those trade-offs between something that will build up and then something that will be be sort of less favourable later in the year. It's quite tricky, and you've also got to understand that the, the timing of events also will come earlier in the season. So whereas our crops might emerge at a certain time, they might be flowering, say, in mid-June and harvested in early August, all of that might come forwards by a few weeks because it's warmer. And the significance of that is that the this crossover between us having wetter winters and drier summers, that changeover happens around April, May time. So it means that all the things happening in April and May, which is the main sort of growing time of the year, actually won't be very different to how it is now anyway, because we'll have a similar amount of wetness, because that's this transition between actually being wetter and being slightly drier. So basically that time is roughly the same. What you might end up with is a situation, and you know, I'm not a weather expert, but you might end up with situations where some years you get a particularly dry spring and some years you might get a particularly wet spring. Some diseases will become more sporadic as a result of that. So that's what we, we are trying to predict. You're now going to have to sit a GCSE biology exam. <laughs> No, don't worry, don't worry. You could describe your science in about two sentences, maybe, using only one of the 1,000 most common English words. So I can only use these words? Yeah, Yeah. it might have to be a bit of a pigeon English sentence. (laughs) Think laterally, Um, that's our only advice. Yes. There's the word escape. Is that what you want yeah, to do? That's what I want to do, yeah. No, it's, it's all got thinking of spores escaping into uh, air. Oh dear, there's one or two inappropriate words there. <laughs> better not use them. I love your aversion to using rude words. <laughs> well, I need when I'm being recorded. <laughs> is air, is disease air is on there? there? Is disease on there? I think it's fair to say the uh, English-speaking people have let us down on this one. <laughs> Disappointing. Uh, yes, sick. Sick is there. So, and it makes plants sick. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good sentence. You should see other people's attempts. You might have to edit them into a different order. Um, and Do you want to give plant. us the sentence all the way no. through? So stuff in the air blows in the wind and makes plants sick. <laughs> it sounded like a Bob Dylan song to begin with. Yes, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. No, good. Along oh, with faecal pellets from mites. He admits he didn't write that verse, did he? Right, yeah, right. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, Unless you have anything else you want to ask, Alex? Yeah, I did, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> it's not very helpful. Well, it? we covered a lot. We did cover a lot. Yeah. I feel like we just yeah. did a degree. 
in aerobiology. Um, Thank you. Thank you, John. Yeah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. We've learned many things. We've covered a lot of ground. And air. Yeah. <laughs> keep breathing. <laughs> keep breathing. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Just keep breathing. Just keep Never breathing. Mind. There might be seeds. <laughs> I, I did have a question, actually. How often do people say, this is John, he's a fun guy? Yes. We got right to the end of the podcast. That came up. <laughs> well, that, that's we actually, can edit that to the I beginning. Think that's why we need to say fungi and not yeah. fungi or fungi, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do that joke. Yeah, and it, so, it is. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but join us next time where we will. Uh, okay, I'm going to do that again. It's still all over my words. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> Join us next time on the science of feeding the world, where we will learn more about the science of feeding the world. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We'd love if you could like, subscribe, and share, or you can get in touch if you're particularly outraged about what we've said today. Search for the Science of Feeding the World podcast on all our favourite social media channels because we can't be bothered to look after anything other than Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. That's right.